All right, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14, and then we'll look at some couple kind of scattered verses, but that, well, that's kind of where we're going to start off and uh, spend a good bit of, of time. All right, now we've been looking at uh, the past couple of weeks uh, statements that sometimes get accredited to being in the Bible, but, but they're not really there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the, the statement of uh, when someone passes, we say, or some might say, heaven gets an angel. And we, we talked about that, how that's not necessarily the most biblical, or really even the best way of looking at it. Last week, we looked at the idea of um, when we say that, that God won't give you more than you can handle. So we kind of looked at what the Bible had to say about that. Tonight, we're looking at the, the, the statement or the idea of God helps those who help Help themselves, or God meets us halfway. You go look and see what the Bible actually says about that. And I want you to understand as we do this, I'm not trying to just pick on these terms and just kind of pick on them like a, like a bully. But what I want us to see and understand is that, is that our words matter. And so when we say something, especially when we accredit it back to God or, or it impacts what we believe as Christians, then we want to make sure that the things that we say are as accurate as they possibly can be. Because we're not just talking about a, a, another person or, or anything that's just common. We're talking about God and God's ways and God's plans and how God works. So it's very important uh, that we, we treat that with the utmost respect and we use uh, the best words uh, as we possibly can and we get things as biblically correct as we possibly can. So... This statement or this, this phrase of God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible. In fact, it gets its uh, origin from a guy uh, who wrote an article. His name was Algernon Sidney. In 1698, he wrote an article titled, Discourses Concerning Government. And then it, it was usually attributed to Ben Franklin, who wrote it in Poor Richard's Almanac in 1757. So, it's a statement that's, that's got some legs to it. It's got some age to it, but it's not a biblical statement. You're not going to find the, the statement, God helps those who help themselves in the Bible. So, are there flaws to it? Are there, are there kind of theological, are there, are there biblical flaws to this statement? I believe there are, and here are three of them. One, I believe that it makes light of grace. The, the essence of grace is... The essence of grace is that we cannot do something and we need someone else's help. We need someone else's strength. We need someone else's power. We need someone else's ability. If, if there were things that God was offering, whether it's salvation, whether it's walking with Him and being His disciple, that we could accomplish a chunk of that on our own, then we don't need God's grace nearly as much as the Bible presents it that we do. The Bible presents the fact that we are, are desperately in need of God's grace. We've talked about this, but in, in Matthew 5, as Jesus begins his, his first public sermon, he starts with those Beatitudes. The very first Beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that word poor there means to, to be a beggar who has absolutely nothing. That if someone does not give them some help, if someone does not give them money, if someone does not give them food, then they are going to die. 
And that's where we're at spiritually. We are all spiritual, in, in, in spiritual poverty, desperate for someone else to help us. And if we can meet God help halfway, or if God uh, helps those who help themselves, meaning that there's things that we do in our own power and in our own ability that have validity, then, then grace is suddenly lessened. And the need for grace is suddenly lessened. Not only that, but it tends to exalt ourselves. Once again, if there's something that we can do, then not only do we not need grace as much, but it exalts our ability. It exalts our strength. It exalts our ability to do something or our work. That somehow, if we're meeting God halfway, or if we're doing something, and then God is just kind of helping us, then what it's saying is we are good enough, or we are strong enough, or we are worthy enough to do something, and God just kind of comes along to pick up our slack, or God comes along to do what we can't do. And I just don't believe, I don't see in Scripture that that's what the Bible portrays. Listen to some of these verses in in Romans. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become in Him the righteousness of God. What all of those verses portray or, or what they are showing is you've got the weak, you've got the, the, the impoverished spiritually, you've got those who have no strength, who have no ability. And it's God who comes along through Jesus Christ who offers strength, who offers grace. The Bible does nothing to exalt us, but the Bible talks constantly about us being positions to exalt Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about God giving us more than we can handle. And there's passages where Paul says, there's the passage of the thing of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says, look, we were put in a position where we had no ability to save ourselves and that we thought that we were going to die, but God put us there so that we would trust in Him. When Paul uh, was, was suffering with that, that messenger of the devil, that, that, that thorn in the flesh, he cried out three times and God refused to remove it so that Paul would be reminded that in his weakness, that's where he finds God's strength. The, what the Bible presents is not, hey, we're strong and, and, and God is just a little bit stronger, so we do our part and God does his part. What the Bible presents is we are weak and we are desperately in need of God. And so whenever we tend to exalt ourselves, on the flip side, whenever we are exalted, then God's value is lessened a little bit. Because if we are exalted, if our power, if our ability... If our sufficiency is exalted, then we don't need God quite as much as we thought that we did. And so whenever we exalt humanity, whenever we exalt man, it robs God of His glory and of His honor and of His prestige. All right, the third kind of flaw that I I see with this is that it impacts our motivations for following God daily. Now, we're going to talk about this a little more as we go on, but... We do have a responsibility in, in life. We have a responsibility to obey God. Uh, we have a responsibility to, to be hard workers, to provide for our families. There are responsibilities that fall on us. We're not supposed to just sit back and wait for God to, to drop our meals in our lap or, or magically pay our bills or, or do this, that, and the other. There are responsibilities placed on our life. But once again, it's not, hey, obey God, and once again, you do your part and God will do, do His part 
We don't obey because we're trying to earn anything from God. We obey because we love God. We obey because He loved us first. We obey because He loved us enough that Jesus died for us. We obey because He is our Father. We obey because He is our King. We obey because He wants what is best for us. That's why we obey. We obey out of worship and praise and adoration. Not saying, all right, God, I'm going to do this and you meet me halfway. Or God, I'm going to do this and then you kind of fill in my gaps. We obey not to say, okay, God, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at how good I'm doing. We obey because... God, look at how great you are. Look at how much you've loved me. Now I'm going to obey because I'm giving my life to you. And so if our mindset is God's going to meet me halfway or, or I'm going to do my part and God will do his part, then, then our motivation for obeying God, our motivation for following God, our motivation for, for being a disciple of Christ is it's what can I do to impress God. And honestly, there's nothing that I can do to impress God. You can't impress perfection if you're not perfect. And I'm far from perfect. And so if I'm going to live a life that that obeys God and follows God, then I want to make sure as best I can that my motivations, that that why I'm doing it is not so I can impress God and gain something or, or coerce something from God, but that I can live my life in obedience to say, God, look, you have given me more than I could ever deserve or imagine. And so I'm giving my life as an offering to you. Now, what Romans 12 tells us, to, to, to live our lives as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Live a life of praise and worship to God in who you are and in how you live. Okay, so I told you to turn to Luke chapter uh, 18. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14 because I think this kind of paints just a, a very good picture of, of kind of what we're talking about. It's the, the, the parable of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So we'll read the passage. I'll pray. And we're just going to kind of keep going. All right. Luke 18 verse 9 says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now and we just... uh, God, I pray for... for understanding, God, as we study your word. Father, God, I pray that as as your children, God, as your representatives, God, that we would strive to... um, God, let the words of our mouths, God, the the meditations of our heart be pure and pleasing before you, God. As we look at our motivations, as we look at the things that we say, Father God, I pray that we could be as as close to true as as we possibly can. And Father God, that we would make it our our effort and make make it our our goal, Lord, uh, to only say things that glorify you and that that convey truth. God, rather than just being uh, using phrases uh, kind of willy-nilly like. Father God, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would move. So Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard willy-nilly in a prayer before? You have now. 
All right, so we got two characters in this. Well, really, before we even get to the two characters, I love it when the, the authors kind of lay out why the, the, or why the, the, the parable is even told. And this one, it says why Jesus told the parables. He told the parables so that those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt would hear this. So he's, it tells us who he is speaking to. He's, he's speaking to these Pharisees. He's speaking to those that, that are self-righteous and that are trusting in their righteousness to earn them salvation. Remember, the Jewish religion was based on works. How well you can keep the law. How well you can keep the sacrificial system. How well you can keep the the, the holidays and the ceremonies and everything else. And your salvation was found uh, in basically keeping God's law or keeping God's rule. Now that's not necessarily what the Bible teaches. Even the Old Testament, salvation was found by grace through faith by looking forward to the promises of the Messiah. But what they had done is they had turned that, they had twisted that in this time to where they thought they found their salvation through their works. And so you've got the Pharisees, and the Pharisees represent this self-righteousness. The Pharisees represent this idea that, that, hey, I can earn my salvation if I am good enough. Now, we understand that's false, but that's what the Pharisees thought. That's what they taught. That's what they believed. And so in this story, Jesus is telling the story to, to set up this contrast so that those who are trusting in themselves will understand that that's not how you're justified. That they would understand that you're justified by crying out to God. That you're made right to God by crying out to God. Not by trying to prove yourself or validate yourself. So in the story, you've got the Pharisee and the tax collector both coming up. Now, we've talked about this before, but just for a refresher, Pharisees were the spiritual kind of leaders and teachers, the pastors of the time. The tax collectors, they were vile. They were, they were wicked. They were selfish. They were um, seen as traitors to their country. Uh, as the Roman government came in, they would get people from within the, the land or within the people group that they had taken over, and they would make them tax collectors. They would give them Roman guards. They would go take money from from their fellow Jews or from their fellow countrymen, and they would be allowed to take whatever they wanted to. So if the road tax was $5, and they said, hey, you owe me $20 for the road tax, the, the government would get the $5, they would get the $15, and you couldn't tell them no, because they had these two big guards with them who would throw you into jail if you did not pay your taxes. So the tax collector, Jesus is using kind of one of the worst of the worst in their society, kind of setting up to one who is viewed the best of the best. And he sets this story up, and the tax collector comes, and he prays to God very, very pridefully. He stands by himself, and he's, and he's praying out loud so that other, others can hear him. And there's nothing in his prayer that is, is humble. There's nothing in his prayer that is focused on God. All of his prayer is focused on him and what he can do. It's focused on him and his abilities. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these evil people. The tax collectors or extortioners or, or, or adulterers or those who are unjust. I thank you that I'm not like them. And here, look, here's all the good stuff that I do. I fast twice a week and I tithe on all that I get. So in this prayer, the tax collector really represents this idea of I'm going to do my part and God's going to meet me halfway or God helps those who help themselves. God, look, look at all the good stuff that I've done. Not only do I do this good religious stuff, I tithe and I give, but I'm also not as as immoral and as unjust as all these other wicked people out there, especially this tax collector that's in the temple the same time he is. And he calls him out and says, I'm thankful that I'm not like that guy over there. 
And he is the personification of this. Hey, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to be good. I'm going to get God's attentions by my actions, by my abilities, by my works. Then I'm going to let God handle the rest. So then we've got the tax collector. Verse 13 says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He understood his sinfulness, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got this, tax, this Pharisee that's over there standing, being very boisterous, being, being very proud in his, in his prayer. Then you've got this tax collector sitting off in the corner with his head bowed, probably slumped in, a, in just a, a, a clump on the ground that, that would not even look up to heaven because he felt so unworthy. He understood his sinfulness and he cried out for mercy. He cried out for God's help. He knew there was nothing he could do to earn favor from God on his own. All he could do, the only hope that he had was that if he cried out, that God would hear him and that God would show him mercy. That is the biblical picture of our relationship with God. Is that we understand that He is the King and we are the servants. He is the Father and we are the children. And we are crying out to Him for help. And we are crying out to Him, not just for salvation, but day in, day out, we are confessing to God that, look, I'm a sinner. I'm going to be tempted today. God, I need your help. If it's left to me, I'm probably going to fall flat on my face. God, I need your help. I need your strength. Day in, day out, if I want to walk with you, if I want to please you, if I want to obey you, if I want to glorify you, I need your help. Because if not, my flesh will probably get out of control and I'm going to go a completely different direction than you would have me to go. He understands that he can't do it himself and he understands that if he needs any help, it's going to come from God. Now, I believe that's the... That's a foundational truth, I believe, of what the Bible presents. Not just for salvation, but, but even our relationship with God. Our relationship... Well, I'll get to this in a second. That's our relationship with, with God. Kind of the, the basics. Now, I said earlier that we would talk about responsibility. That, that, that we do have responsibility. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this. Verses 14 through 16. It says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in this, we see that that there is this expectation that we are to be doing certain things. We are to be living a certain way. We are to be uh, living in a lifestyle or living in a manner that that glorifies, that honors, that magnifies God. As as He is holy, we are striving to be holy. We are striving to live a life that glorifies and magnifies Him. But what we've got to understand is that, once again, we don't do this on our own strength and our own power. 2 Corinthians 1.9, this is the verse I was referring to earlier. It says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the, deaths, or the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now I want us to think about who wrote that. Paul. Paul the Apostle. Paul who was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus to salvation and to be his apostle, to be the one to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul who planted churches all over that area. Paul who wrote over half the books in the New Testament. Paul who, who we look at as one of the greatest missionaries, the greatest Christians in the history of, of Christianity. And yet Paul writes 
that whatever this situation was that they thought that they were going to die from, the sentence of death, he said, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says that all this stuff happened so that our reliance would not be on us, not on our ability, not on our creativity, or not on our strength, or not on our wisdom, or not on our uh, anything that we could do, but so that our reliance would be on God, not on us. Our relationship with God is not a tag team. We don't go in and, and, and work as hard as we can against the enemy or against the flesh and then just tag God in whenever we need help. No, the, 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 the relationship that we have is not one of equals. It's one where He is God and, and we are not. It's one where He is strong and we are weak. It's one where He is king and we are servant. It's one where He is father and we are child. And the statement, God helps those who help themselves, or, or God meets us halfway, it, it totally moves us away from that relationship. What it does is it tries to, to raise us up almost as, as equals. Think about it. If I can say that I'm going to do something, then God's going to finish it out. Or, or if I can say that I'm going to do something, then God's going to meet me halfway to kind of help me the rest of the way then that means the things that I'm doing are on some level equal to what God is doing. And that's not the case. There is nothing that I can do that measures up to God, to His strength, to His power, to His purity, to His morality, to His righteousness. Now I can obey, and, and getting back to the responsibility, I can obey God, and there is a responsibility that I obey God, but like we've already talked about, one, we've got to remember our source of strength as we do that. Our source of strength comes not from us, but we are constantly dependent upon God. Also, we've got to remember our motivation as we seek to obey God, that we, our motivation is to obey God out of, out of love and honor, not out of trying to get something. And I think that part of that responsibility also comes with, with trust. I'm trying to think of ways to illustrate this. When I was looking for a, a job, when I left the church that I was at, their budget could not support having another staff member on, so I was kind of last one on, first one off. And I was sending out resumes looking for jobs. I was praying that God would provide a job. I was praying that God would provide a church for me to be able to serve at. But while I did so, I didn't just sit back and say, okay, God, I'm going to pray this, and then I'm going to go play video games, or I'm going to go watch TV, or I'm going to go hang out with my kids. I'm going to spend time, and I'm going to send out resumes. I was responsible in doing the things that I could do, but ultimately in all of that, I was trusting God for Him to be the one to provide, for Him to be the one that works. I was going to do what I could do, but I was going to trust that He would be God, and He would lead me where He wanted me to go. After I lost that job, I felt that there was a responsibility from what the Bible says for me to uh, provide for my family, or at least help provide for my, my family and do what I could. And so I found me a job selling lawn care for, for True Green. It was a terrible job, and I was terrible at it. I'm not a salesman. But I was responsible to do what God wanted me to do. We had bills to pay. We had things that we had to, to do. We had a house note. We had kids that we got to care for. And so there was a responsibility for me to do that. I believe God provided the job. But I couldn't just sit back and say, All right, God, uh, you know our bills. So I just pray that you magically let there be the money in the, in the mailbox every single week when I could be working. So yes, there's responsibility on us to do the things that God has called us to do. But once again... 
That is not us meeting God halfway. I was striving to be responsible then, and I strive to be responsible now as I, as I work, as I, as I do the things that God has called me to do. I don't, I don't walk up here on Sundays or Wednesdays and just say, all right, God, go ahead and put a sermon in my head five minutes before we get here. I spend time and I study and I, and I think through and I write out sermons and I write out these studies so that we can get in here and we can study God's Word together. There's a responsibility, but at the same time, I'm trusting God to work. Now, this is not... Once again, with the responsibility, it's not me and God meeting halfway. God, I'll do my part. You do your part. I'm responsible because of everything that he's done. I want to love my wife the the way that God has commanded me to love her. I want to love my kids the way that God has commanded me to love them. And I understand part of that is providing for my family. If you don't provide for your family according to the Word of God, and you can, then you're worse than an infidel. You're worse than, uh, than an unbeliever uh, if you choose to disregard your responsibilities when you can fulfill them. So I try to fulfill those responsibilities because, because of who God is. Because He saved me. Because He's changed my life. Because He is my King. Look, I'm well aware of my flesh. And if it weren't for God, I would probably try to be as lazy as I possibly could. That's who I am. Some of you are naturally hard workers. There's a part of me that is just naturally, I want to sit in the chair and watch TV all day. That's my flesh. Now, I don't do that because there's stuff to do and because I try to, to not give in to my flesh. But, but I understand that, that the reason I'm not like that. It's not because of me, it's because of God. It's because He saved me, He's changed me, He's at work in my life to make me different than who I would be without Him. So that the guy that I used to be or the guy that I would be apart from Christ, that's not who I look like. I look like this guy over here that's trying my hardest to to be like Jesus. I'm trying my hardest to to walk with Him and follow Him and to love Him. So it changes not just the spiritual aspect of my life, not just the moral aspect of my life, but it also also changes that, that work ethic. It changes that responsibility. It, it lets me take on things that God has called me to do and called me to be because ultimately of who He is and what He has done for me. Right. So all of that, the reason why we point all that out is because the, the, the essence of that statement is of God meets us halfway or that God helps us when we help ourselves is that one that it is all initiated by us. That it is all started because, because we chose to, to do all of this good stuff and God was just kind of sitting up here in the sky waiting for us to go ahead and do something and He's going to come back and help us. No, the Bible says that God loved us first. The Bible said that, 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 that God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us while we were still sinners. Before we were even crying out for Jesus, God sent Jesus to earth. When Adam and Eve first sinned, God gave them the very first declaration of the gospel saying that a descendant of Eve would come or a descendant of Adam would come and crush the head of the serpent. That is the very first declaration that the Messiah was going to come. So before Adam and Eve even realized that they needed a Savior, God had already stepped in and made that promise, made that plan that the Savior is going to come. We did not initiate that. I did not initiate that. God chose to love us before I was even born by sending his son to die for us and even to promise it once sin entered into the picture. My relationship with God, my salvation was not initiated by by how great or how good I am. It was initiated by how great and how loving and how good God is. That statement says just the opposite. That statement says I initiated it and God helped me out. 
And that is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for those who would mock Him and spit on Him on the cross. Christ died for those who who were His enemies. Uh, uh, James tells us that we were the enemies of God, and yet God loved us enough that Jesus died for us. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who recognize how helpless they genuinely are. God works in those who desperately understand, like this sinner, or like this tax collector, crying out, God, have mercy. There's nothing that I can do if I have any hope. It's because you have chosen to show me mercy. If I have any any benefit in my life, it's because you have chosen to show me love. I desperately need you. God helps those who understand in humility that they are desperately needy for Him. Let's pray.